0: Greetings and thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole, I'm your host. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast as we close out 2016 and enter into 2017. I hope that you enjoyed the Calvinism at Christmas series. That was a, a teaching I did back in 2010 at our church on Wednesday nights And at that time, um, I'd been at the church for about five years, and um, there had been a lot of people who wanted to know the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, and so I taught that class on a Wednesday night as an elective, not forcing people to, to listen to it on a Sunday morning. And so uh, those were the teachings. I, I pray that those have been beneficial to you. And so as we um, start 2017, I wanted to think about an issue that I've been hearing a lot of uh, maybe traditional Southern Baptist or Arminians um, argue, and that is the whole issue of, is faith a gift if a sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and as we as Calvinists believe in total depravity, total inability, does God have to grant the gift of faith to a sinner through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in order for that sinner to actually repent and believe? And I believe that... The Bible teaches that faith is indeed a gift that God does give to his elect, ensuring and enabling them to come to faith in Christ. Now, oftentimes you will hear traditional Southern Baptist, non-Calvinist, Arminian, synergist, semi-Pelagian, however you want to label whatever camp they're in, say that we as Calvinists conflate two things. We, We mistakenly misunderstand the human responsibility and God's responsibility in salvation. And they will say that the human responsibility is to use free will in order to repent and believe. That's the human responsibility. And then God's responsibility is to respond to that humility and repentance by granting salvation. And so they will say that we confuse the two. And when we say salvation is all of God, as monergists, what we're saying is that even the faith that we exercise to come to Christ in salvation is given to us as a gift. Now, the Arminian, the non-Calvinists, the traditional Southern baptist they would argue just the opposite. They would say that, no, we do not believe in total inability. Yes, we believe that we are sinful, we have inherited a proclivity or an inclination to sin, but we are not somehow disabled in our will, preventing us to come to faith in Christ because of total inability. We still have that ability. We as Calvinists will say, no, the Bible teaches that we are definitely unable to come. And so what I wanted to expose you to as we start the new year is one of my favorite preachers, and that is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I hope that you have either read him or listened to him. You can go to the MLJ Trust and listen to all of the sermons that he has recorded there. Um, I've been listening and reading uh, D- Lloyd-Jones for years now. Um, he's a Welshman. Um, I've read his biography, an exciting life. Uh, back when I was a doctoral student at Southern Seminary, I had to do a project in my preaching class on Martin Lloyd Jones, where I had to um, evaluate many of his sermons and listen to them. And um, I've been, you know, reading a lot of his books over the years: um, "Spiritual Depression," those sermon series. Uh, studies in the Sermon on the Mount, um, his Romans commentaries, just a wealth of information. And so what I want to do is I want to play a portion of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' Sermon from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, when he preached through the book of Ephesians, many, many, many thousands of, of sermons through the, the book of Ephesians. And when he got to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, he gives a great, I'm not going to play the whole sermon. This is probably maybe about 10 to 12 minutes of his sermon, but I want to expose you to number one, his his preaching, because as a Welshman, um, he was the, the the pastor of Westminster Chapel for many years. Uh, Just one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, but also just the way he breaks down the argument and the way that he deals with the text. And so I want to listen to Lloyd-Jones, and then I want to um, interact with what Uh, he says. So let's listen to this and then I'm going to make some comments afterwards and then we're going to do a little bit of Bible study and so we're going to start the new year off with Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9. So let's listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones.
1: Now there's a great argument about this 7th verse. About this 8th verse as you know. For by grace are he saved through faith and that Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now the great question is, what does the that refer to? And there are two schools of opinion. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's one. But according to the other view, the that doesn't refer to the faith, but to the grace at the beginning of the sentence. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that, this position of grace, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Is it possible to settle the dispute? It is not. It's not a question of grammar, it's not a question of language. You've got the great authorities divided into the two schools, and it's most interesting and almost amusing to notice the sides to which they belong. For instance, if I were to ask you what was the view of John Calvin on this, I'm sure you'd all say at once that Calvin said that the that refers to faith and not to grace. But actually Calvin said the exact opposite. He said it refers to grace and not to faith. It's a question that cannot be decided. And there is a sense, of course, in which it really doesn't matter at all. Because it comes to much the same thing in the end. In other words, what is important for us is to avoid turning faith into works. And at that point, there is no difficulty at all about the doctrine. But there are many people who do that. They turn their own faith into a kind of works. Indeed, there is quite a popular evangelistic teaching at the present time that puts it like this. They say the difference the New Testament makes can be put in this form. In the Old Testament, God looked at the people and said, Well, now, here's my law, here are the Ten Commandments, keep them and I will forgive you and you will be saved. But they say, it isn't that now. God has put all that on one side. There is no longer any law. God simply says to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, you'll save yourself. And they say, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, a man saves himself. But that, you see, is to turn faith into works. If that is so, it is our action that saves us. But the apostle says, not of yourselves. Whether this that refers to grace or to faith, it doesn't matter. You are saved, says Paul, by grace, that not of yourselves. But if it's my belief that saves me, I have saved myself. But Paul says, it's not of yourself. So that I must never speak of my faith in a way that makes it of myself. Not only that, if it's, if I become a Christian in that way, again, surely it gives me some grounds for boasting. But Paul says, not of works, lest any man should boast. My boasting must be entirely excluded. Very well then, as I think of faith, we must be careful to put it in this form. Faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation. The grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is the cause of salvation. And I must never speak in such a way as to represent faith as the cause of my salvation. What is faith then? Well, faith is but the instrument through which it comes to me. By grace are he saved through faith. Faith is the channel. It's the instrument through which this salvation, which is of the grace of God, comes to me. I am saved by grace through faith. It is just the medium through which the grace of God bringing salvation to me enters into my life. And therefore I say that we must be always extremely careful. Never to say that it is our believing that saves us. Belief does not save, faith does not save, Christ saves. Christ and his finished work. Not my belief, not my faith, not my understanding, nothing that I do. Not of yourselves, Bursting is excluded, by grace through faith. And surely the whole point of the first three verses of this chapter I say again is to show that no other position is at all possible. How can a man who is dead in trespasses and sin save himself? How can a man who is an enemy and alienated in his mind, whose heart is at enmity against God? For that is what I am told about the natural man. How can such a man do anything that is meritorious? It is impossible. The first thing that happens to us, the Apostle has told us in verses 4 to 7, is that we have been quickened together with Christ. New life has been put into us. Why? Well, because without life we can do nothing. The first thing the sinner needs is life. He can't ask for life. He's dead. God gives him life and he proves that he's got it by believing the gospel. Quickening is the first step. It's the first thing that happens. I don't ask to be quickened. If I asked to be quickened, I wouldn't need to be quickened. I'd already have life, but I'm dead and I'm an enemy and I'm opposed and I don't understand and I hate. But God gives me life. He has quickened me together with Christ. Therefore I say that boasting is entirely excluded. Boasting of works, boasting even of faith. They must be put out. It is altogether of grace. And that brings me to the last principle which I just summarize in this way. Our being Christians, therefore, is entirely the result of God's work. You know, my friends, the real trouble with us is that our conception of what it is that makes us Christian is so low, it's so poor... It's our failure to realize the greatness of being a Christian. What is it? Well, listen to Paul. We are his workmanship. It's God who's done something. It's God who's working. We are his workmanship. Not our works, his works. So I say again, it isn't our good life and all our efforts and hoping to be a Christian at the end that makes us Christians. But let me go further. It isn't our decision that makes us Christians either. That's our work. Decision does come into it, but it isn't our decision that makes us Christians. Paul says it's his workmanship. And thus you see our loose thinking and our loose speaking. Oh, how grievously does it misrepresent Christianity. I remember a very good man... Yes, a good Christian man. His way of giving his testimony was always this. He used to say, I decided for Christ thirty years ago, and I've never regretted it. That was his way of putting it. I decided for Christ thirty years ago, and I've never regretted it. That's not Paul's way of describing becoming Christian. We are his workmanship. That's the emphasis. Not something I've gone in for. Not something I've decided. Something that God has done to me. You might then have put it like this. Thirty years ago, I was dead in trespasses and sins. But God began to do something to me. I became aware of God dealing with me. I felt God smashing me. I felt the hands of God remaking me. That's Paul's way of putting it. Not I decided. I went in for Christianity. I decided to follow Christ. Not at all. That comes in, but that's later. We are his workmanship. A Christian is something that's been brought into being by God. God. And you notice the kind of work it is according to Paul. It's nothing less than a creation created in Christ Jesus and to good works. Now the apostle is very fond of saying this. Listen to him saying it to the Philippians. Being confident of this very thing he says that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, God. God. He's begun a good work in you. It's God's work. He came when you were dead and he quickened you. He put life into you. That's what makes you Christian. Not your good works. Not your decision. No, no. What God decided about you. And put it into practice. And it's here I see how appallingly short our ideas of what a Christian has come of the biblical conception. A Christian is a new creation. He isn't another man, an old man who's been improved somewhat. He's a new man, created in Christ Jesus. He's been put into Christ, and the life of Christ has come into him. We are partakers of the divine nature, says the apostle Peter, you remember, in his second epistle and the first chapter and the fourth verse. Partakers of the divine nature. What's a Christian? A good man, a moral man, a man who believes certain things? Oh, infinitely more. He's a new man. The life of God has come into his soul, created in Christ. God's workmanship.
0: Now, one of the things that you understand him saying is that uh, the, the exegetical question is, uh, what is the that is not of yourselves? What is the that referred to? And obviously, he says there are two schools of opinion. Um, I actually think there are three schools of opinion. Um, and he says, obviously, it's impossible to settle the dispute. Um, it's not the grammar or the language that answers the question. Um, He even talks about how John Calvin referred to it um, as the grace, not the faith. Uh, And so really he gives a great exegetical argument saying you really can't determine from the exegesis in the Greek, but more from the context. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of give you the schools of thought on this whole exegetical question. Um, is the, the that not of yourselves? Does that refer back to faith? Is the faith not of yourselves? Is it the gift of God? Is it grace or is it salvation? The, the, I think there's three views. There's grace, faith, or the entire package. Uh, all of those, grace, faith, salvation, everything put together. So the early church fathers really viewed this as referring to faith. John Chrysostom, Jerome, Erasmus, Theodore Beza, and even Charles Hodge are some of the proponents that believed that it was referring to faith being not of yourselves. It was the gift of God. So this was the predominant early church view and it was the view that Beza, who was Calvin's student, took. Now Calvin actually was the exception. Um, he viewed it as grace, not faith. And so it's interesting because, as a as Calvin himself, um, he took it exegetically to refer back to to grace and not faith. Um, some of the modern proponents, when you think about some of the modern scholarship that's really come through some of the greatest Greek scholars, uh, where have they landed on the issue? Well, A.T. Robertson, obviously, um, word pitchers in the New Testament, A.T. Robertson was a uh, professor at Southern Seminary, one of the early professors, um, very much knowledgeable in Greek. Um, He sees the that, that, not of yourselves, really referring to the whole package. It refers back to faith, grace, and salvation. It's the entirety of the thing. Uh, Marvin Vincent, who's also a um, great exegete, sees it that way. F.F. Bruce, a great New Testament scholar, sees it that way. Henry Alford, one of the great exegetes from the late 1800s, saw it that way. Harold Honer. Who is has written the, the Baker exegetical commentary on the book of Ephesians, sees it that way. Peter O'Brien, the pillar commentary. Uh, Sam Storms, um, not so much a, a Greek exegete, but more of a modern-day pastor. Uh, Dan Wallace, in his Beyond the Basics of Greek Grammar, uh, says this is the most hotly debated issue, and, and he argues that it really refers to the entire package. So, These exegetes will say that it doesn't necessarily refer back to faith, but it refers to the entirety of our salvation. That everything is a gift. John MacArthur takes exception. Uh, He would say that it argues that it faith is what um, is a gift. And so the question is: Okay, all these exegetes have come down with with a different interpretation. That not of yourselves is it salvation? Is it grace? Is it faith? Here's the ultimate question, and I think Lloyd-Jones answered this. Context determines the overall teaching. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is not in a vacuum. It's in the context of Paul's argument, starting right back in, in chapter 2, verse 1, where he laid down the total depravity of sinners. This description of being dead in our trespasses, being Um, captive to the God of this world, to the prince of the power of the air, to being captured in our flesh, to walking in the ways of the world, to being children of wrath, this whole idea of being in bondage to sin, being dead in sin. And notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Now, contextually and grammatically and exegetically in that passage of Scripture, God is the one making dead sinners alive. Just read it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Who made whom alive? Did we make ourselves alive alive? Did we somehow muster up enough faith to overcome spiritual depravity, being dead in sins? Did we somehow make ourselves alive by believing? No. Paul goes to great pains in this passage of scripture to teach that God is the one who made us alive. God is the one who raised us up. God is the one who showered us with his immeasurable riches of grace. God is the one who saved us. And so when we look at the entire context, I believe that we could be safe to say that yes, faith itself is a gift. And it goes back to the idea of spiritual deadness. How can a spiritually dead and depraved sinner produce faith? They can't unless God makes them alive in Christ. And once God makes you alive, then you repent and believe. And so we don't conflate human responsibility with God's responsibility. We look at salvation from first to last as a gift that God gives to the elect. Even the repentance and faith required to come to Christ is given as a gift. Now let's look at a couple of other passages of Scripture that teach this concept. And I want to give you the two views, the, the Calvinistic view and then the more Arminian or traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist view. So let's go to the book of Acts, Acts five thirty-one. God exalted him, that's talking about Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance. Repentance. That's an interesting phrase. It doesn't say that God... Let's just think about how, how, how that could have been said and worded differently. It does not say that Israel used their free will to repent and be forgiven. It says God granted repentance or gave repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So God gave two things. God gave repentance and God gave forgiveness. Now we can understand how God can give forgiveness. God forgives. God grants forgiveness. But what does it mean that God gives or grants repentance? The Greek word there is didomai, didomai, which basically in the Greek language means to grant or to give And so, what has God given? God has given repentance. So, in order for those Jews, those of Israel who were hearing the message of the gospel, in order for them to repent, God had to give them repentance. Now, one of the arguments you're going to hear from the other side is Does God grant the opportunity to repent? Or does God grant the ability to repent? The question becomes, is it God grants repentance? God gives them an opportunity to repent. So God gave them an opportunity to repent. Or does God actually grant the repentance? Let's just look exegetically at the passage. Does it say God gave them an opportunity to repent? Do you find the words opportunity in there? No. Do you find the word's ability in there? No, you don't find either one of those words. But what do you find? God gave repentance. God gave it as a gift. And so if God gave repentance to Israel and God gave forgiveness of sins, it's an effectual giving. It's a sovereign giving. It's a giving that actually affects or accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish. So if God just gave people an opportunity to repent and said, hey, hey, here's your opportunity in the preaching of the gospel, here's your opportunity to repent. Use your free will one way or the other. Uh, You can repent or you don't have to repent. It's all up to you. That's not effectual granting. The text says God gave repentance. He gave it. He gave it to them, not gave them the opportunity, actually gave them repentance. Now, in Acts 11.18, you almost have the same exact construction, but this is referring to the Gentiles. So if you think of the book of Acts, there is the, 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 the um, structure. Acts 1.8 really is the thesis of the book of Acts, and it gives us the structure. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you look at the book of Acts, you realize that the church was birthed in Jerusalem, and then there was the, um, the Jerusalem church, the first you know eight chapters of the book of acts then persecution hits and then they go out to uh, Judea and they go out to Samaria and then you have Paul's missionary journeys to the Gentiles and so in acts 11 you've got the same exact structure almost but in reference to the Gentiles so acts 11:18 when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also has God granted Repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the same Greek word there, didomai. God granted repentance. God gave repentance. It doesn't say God gave them an opportunity to repent. It actually says God granted something. God gave it. God gave them repentance. In other words, what God gave effectually accomplished the repentance. And so when God gives repentance, they actually repent because it's an effectual gift. Let's go to Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, Paul's main point in this passage is to talk about how it's been granted for us to suffer, but he also talks about first comes believing. It's not only, not only has it been granted for you to believe, and in the context, he's talking about the gospel, believe the gospel, but you've also, it's also been granted to you that you should suffer. And so the question is, okay, God has granted belief. Now, the word granton here is a different Greek word. It's not didomai. It's karitsomai. And karitsomai really has the word charis in there, which is the, the Greek term for grace. Um, it's really the idea of graciously giving a gift. Graciously giving the gift. Um, the Lunida a lexicon, the Greek, the Greek lexicon, uh, defines it this way: to give or grant graciously and generously, with the implication of goodwill on the part of the giver. To give, to grant, to bestow generously. So, what has God generously, graciously given? He's given belief, not the opportunity to believe. He's not graciously given you an opportunity to believe. He's graciously given you belief. To believe, and so when you look at these two passages of scripture, or these three passages of scripture, God clearly grants as a gift repentance and faith that lead to salvation. So we would say that the faith and the repentance that are required for a sinner to exercise in order to be saved are given as gifts. Now, what actually affected or purchased or uh, is the source of this gracious gift of repentance and faith? Well, it's the cross of Christ. Romans 8.32, I think, is a very key passage of Scripture That helps us understand this truth. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's talking about God giving Jesus in the cross, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. It's the same Greek word there. Romans 8:32, Philippians 1:29 graciously given Now the question you've got to answer from Romans 8:32 is what are the all things that are graciously given to us and the second question is who who is the all that gets these So what are the all things that God graciously gives us as a result of the cross and who gets them Well context 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 determines the answer Romans 8:29 29-33. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So when Paul says that through the cross of Christ, when God did not spare his own son, that God graciously gives us all things, Well, the all things that he's talking about are these blessings of salvation that he's just talked about. The the fact that we were foreknown by God, we were foreloved in eternity past. God set his affection and his love upon us in eternity past, that God predestined us in eternity past to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be saved, that God effectually called us out of darkness into light, that God justified us. He imputed that righteousness of Christ to us, canceling the record of debt, that God glorified us. And Paul uses the past tense there to emphatically say that it's almost a done deal in his mind, that that we will experience final glorification. And so the all things here are the blessings that flow fr- from our salvation from first to last, from election, foreknowledge in the past, all the way to our future glorification. And so that's the first question. These all things, contextually, are the things related to our salvation. Second question, who gets these? Does this go to everybody? No, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Th- those recipients of these all things are God's, elect. And so when we think about the totality of our salvation and all the blessings that flow from the cross, these are given to the elect. What are these things? Being foreknown by God, being predestined by God, being called by God, being justified by God, being glorified by God. Now, that's not a comprehensive list. Paul does not give every single category related to salvation in this passage of Scripture. He doesn't mention adoption. He doesn't mention regeneration. Uh, There's a couple of other things he doesn't mention. But obviously, we know that with the totality of Scripture, the all things are the things that God does to bring us to salvation. And so, by implication, how is a person justified? So, so, so think about calling and justification. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay, so Paul does not give a comprehensive list here. But what goes logically between calling and justification? If God effectually calls a sinner, what does that sinner do? That sinner repents and believes as a result of those being given to him as a gift. And then based upon the gift of repentance and faith being exercised, a person is then justified. Paul teaches that we are justified by faith alone. Faith is the instrument through which we receive justification. And so we can look at the all things that God graciously gives us, including, comprehensively including in that big, huge package of salvation repentance and faith. Now, while Romans 8 does not explicitly teach that faith is a gift, repentance is a gift, we have to look at the other passages of scriptures that do teach that repentance is a gift. And again, is God granting the opportunity to believe and repent? Or is God actually granting repentance and faith? Is there an effectual um, nature to the gift that God gives. Is God just giving a gift that can be rejected or accepted? Or when God graciously gives it, does God infallibly ensure it will take place? Let me just look at one other passage of Scripture. Second Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God may perhaps grant them repentance. The word grant there is didomai. The same exact expression we saw in those Acts passages. But notice the the way that Paul words it. In Acts, this was past tense. God granted the Gentiles repentance. God granted Israel repentance. God granted it. And God granted it. And so when God granted repentance, when God granted it to Israel, when God granted it to the Gentiles, they believed. They came to faith. They were saved because God gave that to them as a gift. In the Philippians passage God granted for you to believe. And so he's talking to the Philippians. You believe because God granted it to you. And here in the Timothy passage, Paul is writing a different context. He's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, who's dealing with a lot of problems in the church, a lot of heresies, a lot of false teaching, just some disunity. And he's talking about how to address those who are non-believers that come against his pastoral ministry. In other words, Paul is dealing with Timothy's evangelism, Timothy's teaching ministry. And so he says, Timothy, as the Lord's servant, here's your responsibility. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't don't get into fights. Don't don't be angry. Don't be an angry young man. Uh, Be kind. Be able to teach. Use sound doctrine Uh, patiently endure evil, correct your opponents, correct your opponents. Okay, so the opponent, Paul's talking about Timothy correcting opponents, Timothy teaching the lost, Timothy teaching unbelievers, those that are causing dissension. And then Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them. This is a future, not a past tense, it's not something that God has already done, and God has not granted them repentance the way we saw in the, in the book of Acts where God did that, or God granting them the belief the way we saw that in the book of Philippians. Now, this is a future possibility. God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may perhaps. So a couple of things we need to look at here. Number one, again, God is the one that's doing it. God has to grant repentance. If those opponents of Timothy are going to be saved, if they're going to have a knowledge of the truth, if they're going to escape the snare of the devil, they're going to have to be granted repentance. In other words, God's going to have to give them repentance. God's going to have to overcome that deadness. God's going to have to overcome their depravity. God's going to have to regenerate them, effectually call them, and grant them repentance. We've seen this all along. God has to do it. God has to make them alive. God has to give that to them. But notice that there's a qualifier there, God may perhaps, perhaps God may do it. Perhaps God may not do it. Who is sovereignly in charge of repenting? Are these opponents going to be using their free will to repent whenever they want to? Or is it totally dependent upon the sovereignty of God, perhaps granting them repentance? Now, Timothy doesn't know when he corrects these opponents, when he deals with these um, people that are coming against him, his responsibility is to teach, to preach, to pray, to evangelize. He can't grant repentance. And Paul, notice Paul doesn't say, if you correct them, if you teach them, if you train them, then they perhaps would use their free will to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's not in Paul's vocabulary at all. That's not even in Paul's worldview. If they're going to come to faith, God has to grant it. And God is sovereign over granting it. God grants repentance to whom he will grant repentance. God grants faith to whom he's going to grant faith. And the question then becomes, well, who is God going to grant? Repentance and faith. The elect. We go back to Romans chapter 8. God will graciously give to the elect all things that flow from the cross. And so when we think about faith as a gift, the Bible is very clear that it is. God's not just granting opportunities. Yes, God grants opportunities. I'm not saying that God doesn't grant opportunities for you to believe that there's not um, uh, you know, divine appointments or moments where God uh, has sovereignly orchestrated his timetable to, to give you an opportunity. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, does the Bible teach that God actually effectually, irresistibly, sovereignly grant the gifts of repentance and faith to the elect so that they will come to faith in Christ. And I have I, we have to believe that yes, God does. And so when we talk about monergism or monergistic salvation, we're not conflating human responsibility and God's responsibility. Yes, human responsibility, we are commanded to repent and believe. That is a responsibility, that is a command, that is something that all people everywhere are commanded to do. And just because there is a command, and just because there's a responsibility, does not mean that there is an inherent ability to do so. God commands what he knows sinners cannot do. And so, yes, God does command repentance and faith. Yes, it is a responsibility. We agree with that, but we're just saying that even the, the, the responsibility to, to, and the command to, to repent and believe, we can't do that because of total depravity, total immobility. God must come in in sovereign grace, effectually call, regenerate, and grant the gifts of repentance and faith. I believe the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, uh, the Confession of Faith that I personally subscribe to, really answers this question in chapter 10 on effectual calling. Paragraph 1. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time to effectually call, by His Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power determining to them that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by His grace. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. That's a great statement. I mean, that's, that is right there in a nutshell and a succinct confessional statement, this whole idea of effectual calling, regeneration, the renewing of the will, the gifts of repentance and faith, the whole idea that we come willingly and that it's God's efficacious power that does it. And so as you start the new year, I hope 2017 is a better year than 2016. I know for a lot of people in our church, uh, 2016 was not a good year. So uh, as you start the new year, would you just spend some time thanking God that He saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and even the faith that you exercised to come to Christ was even not your own. It was a gift of God. So there is no room for boasting. So that when you get into heaven... You're not going to look at God and say, look at what I did. No, you're going to fall on your knees and say, God, it's all of grace. I can't add a measure to what you've accomplished. Even the faith and repentance that I exercised to come to you was given to me as a gift. Because if left to myself as a dead sinner, dead in my trespasses, left to myself with a heart of stone, left to myself being blinded by Satan, left to myself as a hostile enemy of God, left to myself in my depravity, I would have never put my faith in you. I would have never repented. So thank you, God, for sovereignly overcoming my deadness. Thank you for overcoming my heart of stone. Thank you for overcoming my blindness and sovereignly reaching down from heaven and granting me the gifts of repentance and faith by making me alive in Christ, seating me in the heavenly places, powerfully, effectually, and sovereignly, drawing me to Yourself through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, granting me what You require, the gifts of repentance and faith, so that I will not boast, that I can fall on my knees And worship you as almighty God. Because I did not deserve this salvation. I could never have earned this salvation. But you chose to give it to me as a sovereign gift of grace. I praise you, my heavenly Father. Through the cross of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I praise you. I pray that that's your prayer as you start 2017. So, Happy New Year. I pray that you had a great Christmas, and that as you enter into 2017, you will seek the face of the Lord, you'll spend time in your Bible, you will saturate yourself in the Scriptures, you will be a good, faithful, committed member of your local church, and that you will keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.